Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Now, the background that, that brings the, the narrative to the text that we just read in chapter 35 is that God had called a man named Abraham out of a pagan land, a city of Babylon, with the express purpose of revealing himself to Abraham for the intent of bringing through him a nation into the world through whom he would reveal truth, that is the truth of the word of God, and that ultimately he would bring the Messiah, his son Jesus, into the world to be the savior and the redeemer of the world. And so God raised up Abraham and brought him into the land of which God is speaking to Jacob about here in our text, from Babylon to what is present-day Israel today. And there God blessed him with a son, one son, whose name was Isaac. And the promise that was given to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations was then transferred upon his son Isaac, who gave birth with his wife Rebekah to two sons, Esau and Jacob, the man whom we're reading about here in our text. And to Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, God gave 12 sons that would ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel or the patriarchs, the fathers of those 12 tribes that would make up that nation called Israel that God would use to bring his son Jesus into the world. Now, at this point in Jacob's story, all 12 of those sons have been born and they are with Jacob. He has been, up to this point, for the past 20 years, living in a land north of Israel called Paddan Aram, working for his uncle Laban, building a family and building a little bit of wealth uh, to carry along with him. And God spoke to him and said, it's time for you to leave and now go back into the land that I've called you into that I'm going to give to you and your descendants for an inheritance down the road in the future. And so Jacob partially obeyed and wasn't walking uh, especially closely with the God that had been so merciful to him at this point in his uh, walk and in his journey. And he came to the border of the land and he lived there for a little while and he built a house, which God never asked him to do, but maybe a dream that he had, some reason, he builds a house there. And he spends a little bit of time there, but then he leaves that place and he crosses into the border of the land and he comes into a, a, an area that's called Shechem. And Shechem was a very godless place that was very worldly and had a very worldly influence in that day. And we're told in the previous chapter, in chapter 34, that Dinah, who was the only daughter of Jacob that we know of, that Dinah went into the city of Shechem 
to see the daughters of the land and to view how they lived. And in the process of that, the Bible tells us that she was raped by the son of the king, that he seduced her and in some way took advantage of her, and she was defiled. And that Jacob found himself in a place where he was so defeated and depleted spiritually that he had no authority to do anything about it. And he did nothing about it. He said nothing. And when his sons were came home and they realized and learned what had happened, they took matters into their own hands. And when the king of Shechem and his son, Hamor the king and Shechem his son, came to Jacob and asked that Dinah be given to Shechem in marriage, the boys dealt craftily with him And they said, if you guys all agree to be circumcised, then we'll give you Dinah, our daughter, our sister, to be the wife of your son. Now, they didn't have any intention of doing that at all. And the guys agreed, and they were all circumcised. And while they were recovering from that operation, two of the sons, Simeon and Levi of Jacob, went in and killed every single male that was there in the city of Shechem to avenge the defilement that was done to Dinah. From there, the other 10 brothers join them and they spoil the city and they take everything of value from what was in Shechem and they bring it back into their camp with Jacob. And Jacob now, incensed by what these guys have done, not, it seems, so much concerned with what had happened to Dinah, rebukes them for their mass murder and their grand theft. And the boys say, they've defiled your daughter and our sister and will you stand by and do nothing? And so the sum total of where things are at with this nation of Israel that is young but yet has a promise and has the grace of God upon it is that the daughter has been raped, two of the sons have become mass murders, the rest are guilty of grand theft, and there's a civil war among them with absolutely no resolution at all. It is an extremely dark time for a nation that God is forming or has formed for the intent of expressing his purposes in the world. And it's at that point that we come to our text that we read in chapter 35, and there's a little bit of an awakening that takes place there in the chapter as God now intervenes, and there's a total shift in direction that takes place with Jacob and with his family at this point and moving forward. This past Monday, just a couple of days ago, the date was uh, June 6th, 2016. If you write that out, it's 6-6-16. And on that morning, and and, and really even in the days leading up to it, as is kind of my custom, I scan through uh, the headlines of the news for the day, um, both in our nation and worldwide, just to kind of stay on top of what's going on. It's, It's amazing how few of the articles I actually will read Um, but just look for headlines, something that that is of interest. And as I did that, uh, on that particular day, there was one headline that caught my uh, attention. And that headline was um, 6616. Satanists in Los Angeles will construct a giant pentagram to raise awareness of Satanism or for Satanism. So I I wanted to know what that was about. And so I I looked at that, and I just want to share with you just a a paragraph or two from that article um, that quotes... Um, these people that were constructing this pentagram and what they were seeking to do. And so they said this, this is their quote. They said, the pentagram is a star with five points. And so using GPS technology, we will place the five points of the star so that the pentagram will encompass the entire city. 
and when all the points are in place, the pentagram is completed. Drawing this symbol around your city represents a solemn promise from us, the Satanic Temple of Los Angeles, that we will stand with the good people of the city of Lancaster, which is a province of, of the city of Los Angeles, and struggle for our constitutional right to individual liberty, freedom of expression, and the separation of church and state in your community. In the end, we have got to realize that we are not a Christian nation any longer, and we have not been one for a very long time. Today, there are a multitude of religious organizations vying for our attention, and Bible-believing Christians are just one of them. Wicca, along with witchcraft and paganism, is currently the fastest-growing religion in America. Islam is also a fast-growing religion. Christianity, and specifically evangelical Christianity, is declining faster than most people realize. And as I read that article and, and just sat for a minute and thought about what that article is saying and what these people are, are seeking to do in, in the name of what they're doing it in, I thought, where in the world ha have we gone? And, and what have we become as a nation that, that truly is even acknowledged by a Satanist group of people that was founded as a Christian nation? And that's absolutely true. We were founded as a Christian nation. This nation was founded as a constitutional republic that was built upon the principles and the morality and the righteousness of the Bible and of biblical Christianity. When you read the founding documents of our country, you find that broad swaths of what were written in there are taken verbatim right out of the Bible. And this nation was founded upon those tenets and on those principles. I was thinking recently, Georgia was telling me some of the things that she's um, teaching the kids as they're learning about American history and talking about the Constitution itself and how it was uh, drawn up and then ratified and how the Bill of Rights became um, a, a part of it and just telling the story about how many of the states at that time were opposed to a Constitution and it wasn't until the introduction of the Bill of Rights uh, by James Madison and, and some others um, that, they, that then they agreed to it. And so the Bill of Rights then constructed and out of the 12 points that were there, 10 of them were ratified by all 13 states. And there was such a unanimity about not only what the founding documents said, but what they represented, and then the freedoms that were contained in that Bill of Rights and where they stem from and where they come from. And if you take God out of the equation, none of that can exist. It doesn't exist. And so that's what our nation is. And how did we get from that to where now there's groups of people that are building pentagrams around the city in the name of freedom of expression, seeking to bring pollution, and that we stand by. But you know, that's not the only thing that's going on in our country that's a, 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 of mention in darkness. I began from there to just take a look at, at some of the things that have happened in our country just in the past week. So, so the things I'm about to share with you are all things in our country that have happened in seven days or six-day period of time. This is a report that came out uh, at the end of last week that um, there are, have been 66 murders in the city of Chicago just in the month of May. That's up 54% up to a grand total of 252 people that have been murdered in cold blood in the city of Chicago just this year. In San Antonio, it's up 55%. In Dallas, it's up 44%, and Philly and Los Angeles are also way up from the place where they were a year ago. 
Now, that's death. There's death happening um, in, in violence, as in the context of that. But there's also other um, nonviolent gang-related things going on. In Ray County, Missouri, there was a man named Randy Garrison who was uh, arrested and accused of setting his house on fire and killing his two kids. In Houston, four days ago, a former Marine was charged with stabbing an 11-year-old boy who was walking home from school. On Friday, in Ohio, a babysitter was charged with murder after giving a baby a lethal dose of Benadryl. In Kansas City on Friday, a 15-month-old was beaten to death by the mother's boyfriend. In Thursday, in Phoenix, a mother, 29 years old, stabbed her three children, ages 8, 5, and 2 months old. There was another campus shooting last Wednesday in UCLA that left two dead, and just yesterday, five were shot and two are dead from that in a hotel shooting in Phoenix. In response to all of this, the FBI director, his name is James Comey, was giving a report at the State Department, and this is a quote from him. He says, something is happening in America. A whole lot more people are dying. In some places, more this year than last, and more last year than the year before, and I don't know why. I do, but there's more. CBS News, Amarillo, Texas, reported that between September 1st, listen to these dates, between September 1st and May 31st, there have been 188 investigations into inappropriate sexual relationships between teachers and students, the most recent of which is a 24-year-old teacher who was impregnated by a 13-year-old student. And the, the story gets worse when you learn that the, the teacher had been in the home of the 13-year-old, had met his parents, and the parents approved of the relationship that the two had together. 188 investigations in the state of Texas alone since September 1st. That's amazing. You think about it. Last Wednesday, June 1st, a week ago from today, President Obama said that the Bible supports his directive to allow transgender public school students to use the bathroom of their choice. His quote, religious people may disagree, but I believe I'm following Jesus' command to treat others the way I'd want to be treated. And they went on to justify it even more, saying that the golden rule was a very important part of his Christian belief and that he felt like he was following it in the issuing forth of these directives uh, and one's like it. I think it's interesting that if you think even five years ago, you know, there was people in our nation that were suffering with an identity crisis, but who would have thought it would come to the point where it's a gender identity crisis? And we don't know what a boy is and what a girl is. Now, all of that goes without any mention of the drug epidemic that is plaguing every single city and the suburbs of those cities in the United States of America today. It doesn't mention the, the latest reports that estimate that there are 92 million Americans of working age that are out of work right now or that are underemployed or cannot find sufficient uh, employment to pay and meet their monthly or weekly needs. There are estimated 80 million Americans out of a population of about 322 million. So do the math. It's about 25%. 80 million Americans that are on some form 
of antipsychotic or psychotropic medication to deal with uh, you know, some kind of emotional or mental or depression or anxiety problem of some sort. 80 million, one out of every four people are on something in some way. And you look at all of the things that are going on, and sometimes you can almost get overwhelmed by it to the point where you just shut it off. Where if you actually let in the reality of some of the things that are going on in our nation, it would hurt too much. And so the only way that you can defend against it is just to put some kind of a shield in front of your heart and just let the news come in and then just let it go out as just another thing that you heard. But what does God think? And what does God see when he looks at our nation, a nation that he established by his grace, a nation that he blessed with his goodness and has prospered? Through his richness, what does he think when he looks at it? And you ask the question, just like James Comey, the FBI director, how in the world did we get here? Why are these things happening? Well, the Bible gives the answer. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said these words, very profound, very prophetic. He said, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be, men speaks of humanity, not just males, but all of us. For men shall be lovers, and the word he uses is the same love that drove Christ to the cross, where their affection is. Lovers of their own selves, covetous, that means an unquenchable desire for more. Boasters, that means proud, self um, putting forth, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And what Paul declares by the Spirit of God when he gives the state of what the hearts of men, not just one nation, but worldwide, what it will be like in the last days, this is the description of what he sees. And this is the cause and the reason why we've become what we've become in the United States of America today, collectively, and the reason why hearts are so hard that they would do the things that they do. Jesus said that the time would come that iniquity would abound to the point where people's hearts would wax cold, their love would wax cold, and that they would end up, like Paul says, without natural affection. And so this is the reason why we're seeing the things that we're seeing in the world around us in the days that we live in, because this is what's happened in the hearts of people. We have become so self-absorbed and self-consumed and so driven by our own pleasures and our own desires and the things that we want and the things that we must have, that we will have them at any cost. And even if that means murder, even if it means crime, if it means defilement, no matter what it means, we will have the things that we want. And that has become the, 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 the temperature and the climate morally that we live in in the United States of America in these days. Now, Paul said here this. He said that, know this also, that in the last days, these will be the conditions. Now, I don't know where we are today in relationship to the second coming of Jesus Christ, though I believe that we're in the current right now that will end in that event. 
But what I do know is this, absolutely, is that a nation, any nation, and this goes historically and it goes into the future, any nation wherein the descriptive words that are given to its existence are what Paul writes here to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that nation is near its end. God will not stand by and watch a nation that has completely turned its back on him continue having prosperity and blessing and ease and privilege. God says very clearly in his word that he will intervene and that he will judge when these things begin to take place. And I believe in the United States of America today that we are headed for, and I don't know how far away we are, but we are headed for if we continue on the course that we're on for the judgment of God. Now the question, the first question that I want to ask and then answer is that what does it look like for you and I and for a citizen of this country if we don't wake up? If we do not come to our senses and look at what's going on around us and realize that we have fallen and that we're laying on the ground in a pool of our own filth and that something needs to change, then what's that going to look like when God does intervene and judge? Well, when we look historically at the judgment of God that he's brought upon a nation, we see that God always has a pattern, that he starts with warning. He never just comes in and with a golf club and just takes it all out. He always gives a warning and there's always a wake-up call. There's always an opportunity for, for people to, to realize the situation that they're in and to turn from what they're in and to turn back to him. So God will give a warning. The second thing that God will always do is that he'll do things incrementally, meaning that he won't wipe out a nation all at once, but he'll allow a certain part of that nation to, to maybe fall or to become weakened, or he'll allow a military defeat to take place. Something happens that, that is meant by God to get the attention of people with the hopes of having them turn back to him. And then finally, if the warning is unheeded, and then if the partial judgment is unheeded, then God, in his patience, when it's time and when it's just, God will come in and he will remove that nation from its place and take away their privilege and their title and their name as a nation. And we see that happening throughout the Bible. We saw it happen with ancient Babylon. We saw it happen with Sodom and Gomorrah in the pages of Scripture. We saw it happen even with Israel itself, the nation that God had formed for his purposes. They had come to a point where they had so turned from God that God allowed them to be judged and they were removed and no longer did they exist to be a nation. And listen, understand this, that when you look at the judgment of God, and it doesn't stop there. I mean, you could look at all of the nations of old that God has intervened and judged. But understand this, that when God sees fit to judge a nation, it's not pretty, and it's not pleasant, it's not good. I believe if we knew, if we could see how thin the veil is today between where we stand as a nation and the judgment of God and the calamity that can come upon our nation, I believe every one of us would be absolutely terrified. That if we knew how vulnerable we are and, and how little it would take for God to just allow something to happen that would completely upend our country and cause it to cease to exist forever. Economically, we right now as a nation are hanging on by the very fringes. And, and to think through what would happen if there was a, an economic collapse in, in some way, in a way that could very real, realistically happen. 
militarily, we are the smallest and the weakest that we have ever been. And the strength that we have in the world today, militarily, and the defense that we have, is credited to nothing other than the grace of God. And that is it. Because we are not the strongest force in the world when you put the numbers side by side. Systemically, we are not in a place where there is strength. When you consider the vulnerabilities of our power grid or of our food distribution systems or of our healthcare systems, we are vulnerable in this nation in so many ways unspeakably. We can't even begin to understand what they are. And all it would take is for God to lift away his hand of protection in one of those areas just enough and things would begin to unravel very quickly the right natural disaster, a strategic attack from our enemies. We hear sometimes about the potential of an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, a bomb being set off at a certain altitude that would uh, fry the electrical grid. The The right economic situation, it would take very little. And the only thing preserving is God right now. And right now, what our nation is, in reality, is that we're like Samson. You know the story? Wherein he was flirting with disaster in his life. He had crossed every line that God had placed in front of him. And he thought that the spirit of God and the protection of God and the strength of God was always going to be on him because of who he was. Because I'm a Jew, because I'm a Nazarite, because I have long hair, God is always going to just be with me. And it happened, Samson crossed a line that God only knew where that line was. And it says that he rose up as at other times, assuming that the strength would be there but he did not know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And when that time comes, if that time comes for the United States of America, that we turn our backs so far on God that he lifts away the protection and the presence of his spirit from us, that we will rise up as at other times. The tragedy will come, the attack will come, circumstance will come, and we will rise up thinking that we will be able to plug the gap that we'll be able to print another dollar, that we'll be able to respond with shock and awe militarily, that in some way we will grab ourselves by the bootstraps, we'll come up with the vaccine, and that we're going to overcome this one, and we'll think that the Spirit of God is going to be there like He always has, protecting and providing, and it won't. And then what? And then what does a nation do when God has forsaken it and turned His back on it? Well, what happens? What would you do? If you woke up tomorrow morning and you couldn't get gas for your car, if you couldn't go to the grocery store and buy food, if you got up to go to work but there was no more job, there was no more money, everything that was in your bank accounts was erased, there was no more coffee, there's no gym, there's no Netflix, there's no internet, there's no constitution, there's no freedoms, there's no protection, you have absolutely no rights. Your house, your house no longer belongs to you. I was talking with a gentleman, uh, one of the other dads on Rocky's baseball team, And he was telling me about his father who had come to this country from Italy, but that while he was in Italy, he was there during World War II. And he said that when the Germans came into Italy during World War II, they came to his father's house and they took over and they said, hey, listen, this isn't your house anymore. Go. Leave. Wait, no, no, this is my house. No, it's not. This is our house. Go. Just go. But I have nowhere to go. But what do I, this isn't your stuff. Go. And put yourself there. You think because I live in the United States of America that that could never happen. Well, that'll never happen here. That could happen. Everything that is yours, is it really yours? Your house could be gone. No public assistance, no welfare, no shelter. And listen, this is the reality of the judgment of God when it comes. And please hear me. 
that as much as our God is a God of love, and he is a God of love, but he is equally a God of justice, and he is a God of judgment. And he does intervene and judge, and you only need to look at history, and you need to look at the history of Israel, and you realize that it can happen. But before you leave in hopelessness, understand this. It doesn't have to happen. God doesn't want it to happen. He is not a God who's in heaven with a divine golf club setting us up on a tee waiting to drive us off into obliteration. That is not the heart of God. It never was, it never is, and it never will be. God is, in this present day, preserving the United States of America, and God can relent from coming judgment, and he can restore the United States of America. So the second question then is, what happens if America does wake up, and what will it take for America to wake up? Well, in our text, what we have in Genesis chapter 35 is we have the picture of a nation waking up. It's exactly what happens. I mean, things are so bad for the family of Jacob and the family of Israel. And yet God's heart isn't to destroy them or start over somewhere else. God wants to bring them back. And so what does God do? He brings them back around. Now, understand this is that if America is going to wake up, if the United States of America is going to change from the trajectory and the course that we are on, and hear this, something has to change. Things cannot continue status quo the way that they are, going on the way they are. People can't live the way that they're living with the ideals that they're living by and expect that things are somehow going to be different or that God is just going to change his mind. He doesn't change his mind. He's not going to change his standard or his ways or what's right and wrong. He's laid those things out before us. So if the way that we're living as a national entity is in contrast or contradiction to what God says is righteous and what he will bless, that unless those two things somehow come together, then the nation is headed on a trajectory of judgment and God is not going to change course. So that means that the United States of America has to change course and get in line with what God says Otherwise, we're going to continue on this path and we will end in judgment, just like every other nation that has turned its back on God in the past. So what has to happen in the United States of America if there's going to be a change? Well, look again with me at Genesis chapter 35. Notice the intervention of God that takes place right there in verse 1. It says that God said now unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. The first thing that we see happening, and this is an absolute essential for us as it was for Jacob, is that there was a divine intervention from God. Notice that. That it was a God-initiated revival. It wasn't Jacob, though he had awoken very clearly, contextually, when he realized the situation that he was in and and the dysfunction that his family had become, he woke up. But it took an intervention from God to bring him from the place where he was to the place where he should be. And God was willing to do that. God said, arise. And it's an amazing thing to me to consider in the scriptures how many times God takes something that's on the ground, that's in a place where it's destitute and left for nothing but death, and he tells it to arise and he brings it up back to its feet and he restores it. That's always the heart of God. 
But in order for something to arise, it first of all has to realize that it's on the ground. And it means that there has to be an awakening. Something has to make what's dead realize the condition that it's in. And the circumstances that Jacob had been in were that awakening for him. But it opened the door for God to come in and now say, arise. You might be here in a situation tonight and you're hearing all of this in the context of a nation. But you know in your own heart, when you look at the, the, the status and the place of your own relationship with God, that you're in a place of dysfunction. That your relationship with God is not where it's supposed to be. The trajectory of your life is going down the wrong path and something needs to change to bring you back into alignment with God. Understand this, that the heart of God towards you tonight is not to bring you to judgment or destruction, but the heart of God towards you is that you would arise and get right. I think of Peter who fell very hard. Then he denied Christ three times, even as Jesus said. And when he... Jesus died. Peter thought that he was forsaken and that he was done, that God had no more purpose for his life. But Jesus restored Peter personally. And after Jesus ascended, it says in Acts chapter one, it says that Peter arose in those days. And that is always the heart of God towards one of his that has fallen, whether it's an individual or a family or a church, a community or a nation. And if our nation was founded and dedicated to God, then he takes ownership of it. And that tells me that he is willing, even yet now to the present day, to look at the United States of America if we will wake up and he will say, arise, because his heart is always to restore. But notice once he says arise, he doesn't just say get up, you know, from where we are. Sometimes I say that to my kids, you know, they fall on the ground and I know they didn't really get hurt, but they really want some attention. And I'll be the insensitive father that just says, please get up, just Get up, get up, get up. But it doesn't stop there. He says, arise, get up, but then go to Bethel and dwell there. Now, Bethel was, for Jacob, the first place that God was revealed to him. It was in Bethel when Jacob had first fled from Esau and left his family without anything to his name. He used a rock for a pillow. He laid there that night, and as he dreamed, he saw a stairway that extended between earth and heaven. And the angels of of God were ascending and descending upon it. And it says that the Lord stood over it. And the Lord spoke to Jacob from that place over that ladder. And he gave to him a promise and a commission and a purpose and a destiny for his life. And something that Jacob had never had personally, but that he had always just had relationally through his father and his grandfather became his. And it was in Bethel where that happened. And God got a hold of this man Jacob's life in Bethel and there Jacob dedicated his life to God for the very first time. And what God is saying to Jacob here is he's saying, arise and go back to the place where your life is completely dedicated to me. Go back to the place where I am all you have, where it's no longer about the prosperity and the sustenance and the substance and everything that you've become and are living for now But go back to the simplicity when it was just you and me, earth and heaven, me standing over it all, my voice in your heart, when that's what drove you and moved you and motivated your life and your decisions and your promises and your covenants and your vows. Go back there, Jacob. That's where you need to go. And it's the word of God to a fallen brother and sister. It's the word of God to a fallen church. And it's the word of God to a fallen nation. He says, arise and go back to Bethel. Go back to the place where you first knew me. Go back to your roots. And then he says, and dwell there. 
Abide there. Don't do it for a week when a bomb hits a tower. Don't do it for a couple of days or for a season or for a generation, but set your home in that place, that that's where you live and that's where you abide and where you dwell. And then he says, number three, not just arise, not just go to Bethel, but number three, cannot leave it out. He says, and make there an altar unto God. Now the altar in the Old Testament scriptures always prefigures and points to the cross of Jesus Christ. The altar was the place of atonement. It was the place where an innocent substitute had its bloodshed and the death that was deserved by the offerer was transferred upon the offering and the blood was the atonement for that sin. And what God is saying to Jacob here is that it's not just about going back to your roots, but you need to repent of the sin that you've committed. You need to build an altar and there lay your hands upon the head of that lamb and confess the sins that you've committed and that have led you to the dysfunction that you see all around you right now. And be specific and be clear and be contrite and confess your sins to God upon the head of that lamb and then slay it there and let the blood of that lamb be spilled. And what God is saying to Jacob is that it isn't enough for you to just arise and go back, but you need to repent You need to itemize and calculate and think through the sins that you've committed, the places where you've forsaken God, and you need to be honest with your own hearts and confess them to God, bring them to him there in repentance. Build an altar, come back to the cross and realize that apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no life at all. That apart from the cross of Christ, there's nothing for us to look forward to but judgment and hell and separation. That apart from the cross of Christ, we are forever alienated from the life of God, strangers to his covenants and promise, and we are without hope and without God in the world. And that's the end of the sentence. That we share the destiny of what David wrote about in the Psalms when he said that they abide in darkness and they will never see light. And apart from the cross of Christ, that's where all of us would be and it's where our nation will end up. And God is calling a nation to wake up, to go back to the beginning and to repent of the sins that have brought the dysfunction that currently are the status quo. And then God says, go there, make an altar unto God that appeared unto you when you fleddest from the face of Esau, thy brother. What God does is he reminds him what he was before God had intervened in his life. Before I came to you at that time, you were running from your brother. Now, I want you to think about that. First of all, in the context of your own life, what were you apart from Christ? We all know what that was. We were lost. But in the context of our nation and where we stand today as a nation, why were we founded as a nation? Why did the pilgrims first come to the United States of America and set things up the way that they did? Why was there a constitution framed and founding documents that were based upon the Bible? Why was all that done? Why? Because we were fleeing the tyranny of Europe. We were fleeing the conditions that we've created. And God is essentially saying to Jacob, remember why you left and get back to that place again and realize that if you don't repent, you're headed right back there. And so God brings this to Jacob. He intervenes. He says, go to Bethel, build an altar, remember where you came from and how far you've fallen and repent. That's the word of God. That's the first thing that needs to happen in the United States of America today is that God needs to get a hold of this country 
and get a hold of our ears and a hold of our attention and a hold of our will as an entity to the point where we would be willing to say, God, we're in a big heap of mess. And apart from you, we're destined for doom. Well, notice the response of Jacob in verse 2. It says that then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. He declares his intentions to the people here by giving them three commands. Jacob, the leader, says to those that are following, those in his household, he says, first of all, put away the strange gods that are among you. Now for them, we get the picture of the teraphim, the small household idols, the little images that they would have, the little devotions as they would call them in those days that they would burn candles or incense to or to make their prayers or offerings or the lucky charms or rabbit's feet or whatever it was and all the rest. And somehow that had crept in, even in the household of Jacob, even though they knew it was wrong. But for you and I, when he says, put away the strange gods that are among you, it takes upon a whole new context, doesn't it? We think about the things that creep into our lives and rob our affection and our time. The things that take first place and first priority over God in us. Those things are strange gods. Those are the things that God would look at and say you need to get rid of that within your life. And God looks first in the house of Jacob and he says you need to put away the strange gods. You need to go through your house and realize in your life the things that are not pleasing to him and then get rid of those things there. Put them away. And then second of all, he tells them to be clean, that there was a cleanliness that was lacking within them. The word speaks of purity or purifying themselves. And the idea is to be holy before God, and the word is a verb, it's an action, that something has to happen where you need to be washed. There's things that you're not going to do anymore in your life or allow anymore in your life because you're Christians now, and they knew it. The Bible says that it is essential for the people of God that we be holy. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes and he says, Wherefore, to the church, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's lifestyle. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. There's a clear call to the people of God to live holy lives. In Hebrews chapter 12 it's verse uh, 14. The, The author of Hebrews writes and he says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And for us to think that in some way that we can live unholy lives or that we can compromise God's standard of holiness and think that just because we name and claim the name of Jesus that somehow that free and clear makes us God's people. The Bible says that the standard is holiness and without holiness, no man will see the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1, the apostle Paul writes there and he says, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said that you would put away concerning the former lifestyle, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you would put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. And what Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia, the last day's church that he counted faithful to himself in Revelation chapter three, verse seven, he identified himself to them as him that is holy. And the Bible tells us that we serve a holy God. And the standard that God expects from us, his people, is a standard of holiness. And Jacob knew that even in his day. And he was able to look at his sons and without giving them the Bible study of what it meant, he was able to look at every one of them and he's able to say, purify, put away, cleanse yourselves from all the things in your lives that don't belong there and set your heart right before God. And then he said to them, third of all, and he said, and listen, Guys, girls, change your clothes. That's what he said. Change your garments. We're not going to dress that way any longer. We're a Christian home. And we're not going to express ourselves according to what they wear in Shechem or what they wore in Babylon. But we're going to look different because we are different. And he, in his own home, took ownership of what was taking place with his kids. And he says, these are the things that we're going to do. And these are the things that we're not going to do. This is the thing that we're going to allow. And these are the things that we're not going to allow in our home. And so Jacob made a stand as a leader. But notice what happens. And then he says in verse three, he says, and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Notice in verse four, it says, and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Do you see what happened there? Is that God took the conviction that was birthed in the heart of the leader and as it was expressed and communicated into the heart of those that were affected by it, their hearts were also moved and they agreed. And they gave their idols into the hand of Jacob and he then took them and he buried them under the oak tree that was there in Shechem, the place where Dinah was raised. Now in the Bible, again, the tree always speaks of the cross. Cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. And when you see it in the Bible, there's an expositional constancy, that's what it's called, and it always speaks of the same thing. And what this is, I know, technical, don't get lost, don't worry, we're bringing it back right here. Listen. What he did is he took those things. He took the idols, he took the things that didn't belong, and he brought them to the foot of the cross symbolically. And what amazes me about that is not only that God would accept that offering and that God would bury those things there, but what amazes me is that there was an oak tree in Shechem. That's what amazes me. Not not, not an oak tree that produces acorns, but what it symbolizes is that in a place as godless as that, even there, God provided access to the cross. That's the important thing to understand. Because for us to be in the place that we're in, for the United States of America today to bring her idols and everything that offends and bring it to the foot of the cross and to lay it there, that would be many. And for God to look at something that has gone as far south as we have as a nation, or maybe it's just you as an individual or as a family or me, and for him to accept us in that place where we are and that there would be access to a cross in Shechem, the picture of defilement is nothing but pure grace. It's pure grace. Grace that God would accept us. And 
He will accept us. I love the verse in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. When Absalom was estranged from David and, and the, the plot was hatched by Joab to make sure that Absalom would be restored, the son who was estranged returned to his father. It says this, it says, For we must needs die, and we are as water which is spilt on the ground, which can neither be gathered up again, neither does God respect any person. Yet does he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Speaking of God. And God always makes a way for people to come back to him. And Jacob took what didn't belong there. He buried it under the oak tree that was there at Shechem. Even there, there was a cross. And then notice what happens in verse 5. And it says that they then journeyed in obedience to God. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Listen, so here, bringing it back to the theme. What will it take for the United States of America to wake up and what will happen when it does? Is that First of all, there will be a divine intervention of God. Is that he will shake this nation awake, bring us to a realization of where we are. He will prepare the hearts, starting in the church and then in the world, and make us recognize the filth that we're in, bringing it to him in repentance, laying it at the foot of the cross, and then experiencing his restoration. And then following that, notice... It says that God restored the place of authority. It says that as they journeyed, that their enemies did not pursue after them. God put the terror of himself upon them. And notice as we read on, look at, look at verse 6 with me. It says, So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And in obedience, he built there an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Ellen Bakuth. And then here's what happened. Notice in verse 9, and this is key. It says, And God appeared unto Jacob again. You see that? God wasn't finished. Things had gotten real bad, but God wasn't done. And God appeared unto Jacob again. And when, when he called or came out of Paddan Aram, and God blessed him, there was blessing in Jacob's future. And God said unto him, thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. God reestablished his calling upon Jacob's life, though he had lost it. God had already done this once. This isn't the first time God changed his name. This is the second time. Meaning that he had had an encounter with God, but that he forsook it. And now God was reestablishing that encounter by saying your name will be called Israel, which meant governed by God. And then God said to him in verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee and kings shall come out of thy loins. The promise is reestablished. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, to you will I give it and to your seed after you will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked to him. And then notice what Jacob does in verse 14. It says that Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. Now, the drink offering in the Bible is always a symbol of a fully dedicated life, a life that is completely consecrated and dedicated to God. In 2 Timothy, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul was just about to die, and he was writing to Timothy for the last time before he would go to heaven. He said, for the time of my departure is at hand. 
for I am already ready to be poured out as a drink offering before the Lord. Speaking of his martyrdom and his departure. Paul looked at his life as though it completely belonged to God and he said, God is about to take my life and he's about to pour it out. It's going to be gone, consecrated forever. And here's what Jacob does here symbolically is that he gives himself an absolute and total rededication to God. And then he pours oil on it, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the seal of the covenant. And Jacob called the name of the place again where God spoke with him and he calls it Beth. And so there's an appearance of God to Jacob again. His name is reestablished. There's a promise given and there's rededication. Now, as we close, in order for this to happen in the United States of America, it has to start right here in this room. It has to begin with the church of God. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God, but it's also true that revival begins in the house of God. God said to Jacob, he said, arise. And it's important for us as a church to realize that if the nation is in the condition that it's in, part of the reason is, because, is, is, the, is that it's the fault of the church. Jesus said that we are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. He said that we are the salt of the earth, that which provi- uh, um, um, preserves and keeps things alive. It gives distinction and flavor. It's what keeps things from going rotten. It's the church. It's you and I. We're the light of the world. The Bible says that the people of God, that we are the head and not the tail. We are Jacob in the story, if you will. Because we're the leader, if you would, in things. And it begins here. It begins with us. Revival begins with us. And so we need a genuine visitation from God. And when did Jacob wake up? It's when he could look at what was going on around him and he could honestly see the mess that his own life had become and the mess that his country had become and he was willing to change. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. It says that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's number one. But then also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It isn't just that when we bring our sins to God in confession that he forgives them, they're forgiven. But then he breaks the power of those sins and he cleanses us. And there's a cleansing, there's a restoration that takes place. If we confess, he cleanses. And so if we're willing to honestly look at our own lives and see that we're a part of the problem, at least a part of the problem, and then leave where we are presently, go to the foot of cross and give him all, that's where it begins. It starts right here with you and I getting honest before God and saying, God, let the searchlight of your Holy Spirit and of your word search my heart and search my life. And you search out everything that I am and everything that I'm not and everything that I'm supposed to be and make me willing, God, to be what you've called me to be. Break my heart. Fill me again with your Holy Spirit. Reveal Jesus to me. Show me where I come from and where I'm going, what I'm headed for. Reveal to me your purpose in the world that there's nothing else that exists outside of you. Light a fire in me again, God, where you're the only thing that matters, where you're my everything and there is nothing else, where eternity is stamped upon the backside of my eyelids, that as often as I blink my eyes, that so often are you in my thoughts, that there's nothing else that makes the heartbeat of my life tick but you, God, and your purposes in your kingdom. Start with me. Lord, break me. Take the things that don't belong in my life and change them, God. Take me like clay in your hand. Break it again. Conform it into your image. 
and make my life what it's supposed to be. That's where it begins. And if it doesn't start there, then it doesn't happen at all. Because God works one at a time. And a fire spreads one spark at a time. That's how it happens. And if we, the church, aren't willing to take ownership of what's going on around us and deal with it in our own lives, then we're hopeless to think that there's going to be any change out there in the world because God's going to work through his people. And if we're willing to do that, then we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will come and I will heal their land. That if God sees us a willingness and a readiness and he sees in us a repentance and he sees a broken heart and then he hears from us as we plead and call out for God to heal our nation, his promise is that he will. The sad thing is that as often as God looks, equally as often he says he finds no one. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 29, God speaks, Ezekiel by his spirit, He says, the people of the land have used oppression. They've exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. Someone that would intercede. Someone that would say, God, break us and heal us. That I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, God says, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. Where did God look when he was making a decision about whether or not he was going to judge a nation or not? He looked at his people, didn't he? He said, I looked for a man among them that would stand in the gap and pray. I looked for someone who would intercede. Where did he look? Did he look at the bar? Where did he look for that? He looked amongst his own people. And he couldn't find it. Do you understand the ownership that we take in the destiny of our nation? We sit by sometimes as the weak and voiceless victim, but you and I are not the voiceless victim. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're the ones that he called the light of the world, the head and not the tail. We're the ones that he's looking at when he makes these directives and decisions. And what he says to you and I is, listen, open up your heart to me. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. Let your home and your heart and your family and your life become consecrated again to me. And then you open your mouth in prayer and intercede. And don't close your eyes to the things that are going on. And ask of me, God says, and I'll give you the nations. Ask of me and I'll heal your land. But so often he looks and he waits and yet we're unwilling. It will take a miracle of God I wonder if it can happen. I mean, when I think about it, when I think about what it would take and what it would look like, and I I just look through the lens of what we just read, Genesis, just to take those first five verses of chapter 35. Can I really honestly say that I can see our nation as a collective whole taking taking our sins and repenting of them and bringing them under, under the cross and under submission to Christ? I have to say in the natural, I'm extremely doubtful that that can happen. But in the supernatural, I believe in a God that can do all things. And I believe that's what he wants to do. That's what God wants to do. He said, arise. He calls us to respond. 
We're going to pray. We're going to close the service now. I'm not going to call the musicians to come. Here's what I'm going to do. It's a little humbling, maybe not humbling, but out of, out of the ordinary. I'm going to get down from the stool, and I'm going to kneel right there on the steps of this altar. And I'm going to wait a couple minutes. And I'm going to invite you as the church to join me here, to join me right here, as it were, at the foot of the cross. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to open our hearts to God. And I invite you to come and join me as we do that. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us, for our homes, for us, our families. I'm going to pray for our church. I'm going to pray for our nation. And then I'm going to pause and I'm going to give place. And if God moves you to pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity, a moment to pray. And we're going to pray because that's what we need to do right now. We don't need to close in a song and go home and turn on a sitcom and, you know, just let this study melt into the collective body of studies that we've heard and do here every Wednesday. We need to go to God. We need to recognize the severity of the days that we live in. We need to humble ourselves and pray. And so I'm going to get down. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to wait a couple of minutes. And then we're going to pray as a church. Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name. And Lord, we recognize the great place that you've given to us to live in this time, to be a part of the church in these days. And Father, we recognize that there's a, there's a cross stamped in your mind and your son is hanging upon it. And that him there, that he absorbed the sin of the whole world. And Lord, as a nation, as individuals, even as a church, We've looked him right in the eye and we've gone our own way. And tonight, Lord, we come to you in repentance. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would forgive us. We ask, Lord, that right now you would open up our hearts, that you would search us. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, that you'd forgive us for our sins. You'd forgive us for our apathy, for turning a blind eye to the things that are a grief to your heart. We pray that you'd forgive us for our indulgences, Lord, the things that we've given ourselves to. We ask that you'd forgive us, Lord, for the idols that we've erected in our hearts that nobody else knows about, the things that we've placed in higher priority to you. God, the things that are an offense and that are a stench in your nostrils. We repent tonight of our lack of concern, O Lord, for the lost, our lack of concern for our nation and the things going on. We repent, Lord, that we've become so self-absorbed and uh, self-consumed that we've become so unconcerned with the things that are important to you. We ask that you'd forgive us for our silence, for remaining silence when, silent when you've given us a message to proclaim. Father, we ask you'd please forgive us for hardened hearts. Lord, that we've become so callous that we can allow sin to happen in our homes or in our own lives or that we can indulge in it with our eyes and we can be so unmoved by it. We ask that you'd forgive us. Lord, we pray tonight that you would forgive us for our lukewarmness, that you'd forgive us, Lord, for being half in the world and half in the church, half in half in. In, in darkness and half in light, half in bitterness and half in what's sweet and real. Lord, we ask that tonight that you would forgive us for these things. Lord, every one of us that's here before you is guilty of it. 
Lord, we have ceased and stopped being the light that you've called us to be in the saw, and we ask that you'd forgive us. Oh, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, would you restore? Lord, would you cleanse? Father, that you would move upon our hearts and that you'd cleanse our hearts and our minds and our bodies, that you would purify us, Lord, and revive us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would move through our homes. Father, that you'd forgive us for the apathy and, and the way that we as the leaders of our homes have not directed our homes and led them in the things of you. We pray for our wives and for our husbands and for our children. Oh God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as families and that you would take first place again, that you would be the priority in the highest order of our lives. Oh God, please, we plead the blood of Jesus upon us, Lord. Forgive us for the things that we've allowed. Father, we ask for a revival. Oh Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit again. Oh Lord, that you would give to us a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit and of life. Oh, Lord, that our hearts would be rent, Lord, torn to pieces. And that, Lord, we'd be anointed again with the oil of joy and gladness. Oh, Father, how we need it. We pray that you would give us a fresh vision of Jesus and of the cross. A fresh realization of the blood that he shed and of our need for that blood. And we pray that there would be an awakening in our hearts to be and to do what it is that you've called us to be and to do. Oh, God, that you would move. You said that if we would ask for the Holy Spirit, that you would give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. And so tonight, Father, would you please come upon us? Oh, Lord, let these not be words. Let not these words, Lord, that we've heard tonight, let not the things that have been revealed of your heart and of your mind fall upon ground that where it's stolen, where it becomes nothing. God, shake us and revive us. Oh, God, we pray for our church. We ask that you'd forgive us for where we've missed the mark, for we've made worship about something that it's not. Oh, God, where our priority and our focus has been shifted and changed, come upon us again. Give us a hunger and a, and a thirst for your word, for souls, for the lost, for the kingdom, for your glory. God, that you would make those things real and alive to us again, that you would revive us and change us, Lord, we ask for our church, please. Father, we pray for our nation. Lord, as we consider the things that are happening in our midst, the things that are happening in the homes next door, sometimes in our own homes, in our streets, in our cities, as we consider what's happening to our women and to our children, oh God, to our lives, to our youth, what's happening in our schools, the things that are being propagated, the lies that are being told, the things that are being believed, the religions that are growing, God, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ upon our nation. We pray that there would be another awakening, that you would hold us over the fires of hell, God, that you would make us realize what it is that we're flirting with and the disaster of it, and that you would awaken us, Lord, and bring us back. Would you please shake us, Lord? Would you remove wickedness, Lord? Remove it from Washington, D.C. Remove it from Congress. Remove it from the Senate. Remove it from local governments, Lord, from governor's mansions. Remove it from state houses. Remove it, Lord, from assemblymen and, and, and from people that serve in lower houses and places of authority. God, remove it from our counties and from our homes. We pray that you would come against the wickedness, Lord, and that you would bind it up. And that, Lord, you would raise up a standard of righteousness in these days. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen the church as the collective body of Christ. Oh, Lord, that we would again be the light and the salt that you've called us to be. Father, we ask tonight, oh, Lord, that you would hear our prayer. Oh, God, that you would come down. Oh, God, that you would reach the lost. Father, we need you tonight. We make it our prayer. Oh, Lord, please make it a reality. Oh, God, change us from the inside out. We ask these things in Jesus' name.